I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 1.11, Valeria Messalina, Her Highness the Whore. Pages of history are filled with women who, after daring to venture into the political world, have been vilified as whorish demons. If they were successful and stayed the course, like for example Livia, then they could transcend that reputation and emerge triumphant. But if they made mistakes or found their careers and lives cut short too early, then they can be completely damned by history. Such was the fate, as we shall see, of Valeria Messalina. Last week, we saw how Messalina secured her position as empress after the birth of her son Germanicus, and worked with one of Claudius's trusted advisers, the freedman Narcissus, to bring down Gaius Appius Silanus, a man they had both identified as a potential threat to themselves and Claudius's regime. Appius was the biggest fish that Messalina had managed to bring down thus far, and his downfall met with a very negative reaction. Angered by the repressive turn that the Claudian regime had taken, a cabal of powerful Roman senators formed around the governor of Dalmatia, a province that contains most of the modern Balkans. The rebellion was, at first sight, a very dangerous one, but it quickly fizzled out, and most involved died, either by their own hand or that of execution. The Dalmatian rebellion was not a serious threat in the grand scheme of things, but it scared the bejesus out of Claudius. No provincial governor had before risen up against his emperor. Governors controlled great numbers of troops and could readily find funds for their rebellions from the taxpayers of their provinces, as countless Roman emperors in the future would find. Messalina and Narcissus took advantage of this fear. Cassius Dio writes, quote, Messalina and Narcissus seized this opportunity to wreak their direst vengeance. They employed slaves and freedmen, for instance, as informers against their own masters. These masters and others of the highest birth foreigners and citizens alike, and not only plebeians, but some of the equestrians and senators as well, were put to the torture. 
in spite of the fact that Claudius, at the very beginning of his reign, had sworn not to torture any freedmen. Many men, therefore, and women too, were executed at this time, some of the latter even meeting their fate in the very prison itself. Some of the most guilty, nevertheless, by means of favours or bribes, saved their lives with the help of Messalina and the imperial freedmen in the following of Narcissus. The sources portray this period as being one of those periodic periods of repression at the top of Roman power politics, as a political faction that had the ear of the emperor sought to rid the table of their rivals. While Messalina was in a strong position for the moment, the winds of power in Rome could shift in an instant. She and Narcissus recognised that Claudius's position was inherently weak, as few in Roman society considered him to be a particularly strong or effective emperor. With potential threats everywhere, they needed to stamp down on any nascent sign of rebellion, and firmly establish and defend the rule of their emperor. That is the positive read in any case. But, as you would have heard in that passage from Cassius Dio, this wasn't the view of the ancient historians, who take great pleasure in castigating Messalina for acting purely in her own interests, not that of Rome and her emperor. Messalina is personally accused, or credited, it depends on your worldview, with the deaths of a number of powerful Romans. Among them was Vinicius, the widower of Claudius's disgraced niece Lavilla. He had become rehabilitated in the eyes of Claudius and had served with distinction in the conquest of Britain, and even served a second term as consul. However, he died suddenly in 46, and many suspected Messalina of having had him poisoned, fearful that he wished to be revenged on her due to her role in bringing down Lavilla. Frankly, this seems a little unlikely to me, as surely he would have been in a better position to do this earlier rather than many years later, but it's possible nonetheless. A more likely target for Messalina was a man named Pompeius Magnus. One of the main goals for any consort, at any time, is to ensure that one of their children succeeds to the throne. This is a common theme across this series, and I'm sure will continue to be going forward. Messalina was no exception. She was desperate to make sure that Britannicus became emperor after the death of Claudius. Now, the situation looked to be pretty well sewn up in the early 40s CE. Britannicus was Claudius' only son, and the emperor doted on the boy. But there was always a chance that the fly could enter Messalina's carefully prepared ointment. The problem was that Britannicus was still a young boy, and not in the least bit ready to become an emperor of one of the greatest empires in history, let alone one with a political system that was still being bedded in. Therefore, Claudius made the decision to get some insurance, and married off his daughter Antonia to Pompeius. He was descended from Pompey Magnus, the great ally-turned-rival of Julius Caesar in the dying days of the Republic. His was one of Rome's most powerful families, and one of the oldest. Little is known about his career, other than that he had raised the ire of Caligula, but then again, who didn't? Given his family and the fact that Claudius picked him to marry his daughter, he must have been quite the distinguished young man. Claudius's plan was to essentially bridge the generational gap, so that, should Claudius die suddenly, the empire could be passed on to someone of age, and therefore bypass the likely chaos that the succession of a minor would represent. Augustus had done something similar when he had elevated Tiberius during the infancy of his preferred heirs, Gaius and Lucius. It was a pretty clever move, and was clearly in Claudius's interest. However, it was not necessarily in Britannicus's interest, 
and therefore it was most definitely not in Messalina's interest. In early 47, Pompeius was killed while at the height of a passionate encounter with a young male lover. For such a dramatic death, I would have loved a lot of juicy details, but the sources are infuriatingly brief, so I'll just let you picture that in your head for a second. Okay. It's unclear whether the lover himself did the stabbing, whether it was done by a third party, or perhaps even, if you'll let me throw some cold water over you, if he was merely killed after the fact. But there seems little doubt that this was a highly political murder. Pompeius's parents, Marcus Frugi and Scribonia, were both also executed, likely on the orders of Messalina as well. She'd already taken out La Villa and sent her sister Agrippina into exile. She wasn't about to let any upstart senator steal the throne away from Britannicus. These are just a few of the men that Messalina is accused of having brought down. There were a great many others as well. Messalina's great ally in this regard was a man named Publius Suilius Rufus. Rufus was a member of the Senate, who had had quite the career so far. He had served in the army under Germanicus, then had been prosecuted for corruption under Tiberius, and exiled. He found a new career, though, in the imperial service under Claudius, leading the prosecutions of anyone who aroused the suspicion of the emperor or Messalina. These included one of Claudius's nieces, Julia Livia. She had a son, and it seems likely that Messalina targeted her as she feared that this child could one day be a rival for Britannicus. Messalina had her accused of incest and indecency, charges the ancient sources insist she was completely innocent of. Rufus led the prosecution and won the case. Julia Livia either committed suicide or was executed, depends on who you believe. Claudius did nothing to help the cause of his niece, further adding to his reputation as a hapless husband dominated by his wife and advisers. Historians of the reign of Claudius sometimes label this period of repression as being the Messalina period, due to the high number of prosecutions, confiscations, exilings and executions of senators, prominent equestrians and wealthy freedmen. Historian Anthony Barrett estimates that during the reign of Claudius, 35 senators and around 300 equestrians were put to death, with the majority of these occurring during this Messalina period. Indeed, there is a notable drop-off after her downfall and the accession of Agrippina as empress, a woman who had far better relations with the Senate and the ruling classes. I don't think, though, we can entirely blame Messalina for this. Claudius was himself a suspicious man who had a lot to be suspicious about. He was quite capable of leading his own reign of repression, but it is clear that Messalina stoked his fears with her own, and so the two of them together used the imperial bureaucracy to bring down anyone that they suspected of being opposed to them. Where Messalina came into her own was in her zeal in taking down opponents, and her skillful use of allies in aiding her in that cause. Messalina's reputation for attacking and murdering her opponents, though, is only one part of her legacy. The other part, the more famous and salacious bit, is her scandalous sexcapades. Now, I've teased talking about this for a very long time. Messalina's reputation as a rapaciously sexual demon is long-standing. Her name has gone down in history as an infamous harlot who used sex to embarrass her hapless husband, corrupt a generation of Roman women, and achieve her own naked ambition, pun intended. Her name is literally in the dictionary. 
the Oxford English Dictionary defines a messalina as a, quote, licentious, lascivious, or scheming woman. Charlotte Bronte has Mr. Rochester call his wife in the attic Bertha, a woman he regards as violent and insane, as his, quote, Indian messalina in Jane Eyre. Eustace Chapuis, that great ally of Henry VIII's first wife Catherine of Aragon, calls Anne Boleyn, quote, the English Messalina. In 1524, an erotic manual was published in Italy called I Modi, or The Ways, which describes and illustrates 19 different sexual positions. The manual uses a number of famous couples from history and legend to demonstrate them, including Achilles and Briseis, man supporting the lady, and Antony and Cleopatra, side-by-side missionary. Number 14 is Messalina, which features her, let's say, lying on her back on the bed with the man standing. I've attached a link to the Wikipedia page if you're interested. I could go on. Alexandre Dumas lists her as one of history's great courtesans in the Count of Monte Cristo, and the Marquis de Sade saw her as a pornographic icon. She even became the face of a French anti-venereal disease campaign in the 1920s. I think by now you get the picture. In the sources, there are many incredible depictions of Messina's harlotry. The first that I'll tell you is by Juvenal, who wrote in his satires, quote, When Messina realised her husband was asleep, she would leave, with no more than a single maid as her escort. Preferring a mat to her bedroom in the palace, she had the nerve to put on a nighttime hood, her highness the whore. Like that, with a blonde wig hiding her black hair, she went inside a brothel reeking of ancient blankets to an empty cubicle, her very own. Then she stood there, naked and for sale, with her nipples gilded under the trade name of She-Wolf, putting on a display with the belly you came from, noble-born Britannicus. She welcomed her customers seductively as they came in, and asked for their money. Later, when the pimp was already dismissing his girls, she left reluctantly, waiting until the last possible moment to shut her cubicle, still burning with her clitoris inflamed and stiff. She went away, exhausted by the men, but not yet satisfied. And a disgusting creature, with her cheeks filthy, dirty from the smoke of the lamp, she took back to the emperor's couch, the stench of the brothel. I'll just let that all sink in for just a moment. This comes from Satire 6, named The Decay of Feminine Virtue, sometimes also translated as Against Women. And it is an infamously misogynistic diatribe, even by the standards of the time. It is divided into a number of feminine vices, with Messalina headlining the lust section. The other great depiction of Messalina in this vein comes from Pliny the Elder. In a chapter in his Natural History, where he discusses sexual reproduction, he writes, quote, All the other animals have fixed seasons of the year for mating, but man, as has been said, mates at every hour of the day and night. All the others experience satiety and coupling, but with man this is almost entirely absent. Claudius Caesar's consort Messalina thinks that this would have been a truly regal triumph selected for a competition in it a certain maid who was the most notorious of the professional prostitutes and beat her in a 24 hours match with a score of 25. These two depictions of Messalina paint her as being nothing more than a common prostitute, an insatiable addict who thought of sex and nothing more. 
but they really only attack her, while Cassius Dio describes her as corrupting the whole of Roman society. Quote, Messalina was not only exhibiting her own licentiousness, but was also compelling the other women to show themselves equally unchaste. She made many of them commit adultery in the very palace itself, while their husbands were present and looked on. But to bring this back to what we were discussing earlier, Dio also accuses Messalina of letting her debauchery encroach into political life. Quote, Such men she loved and cherished and rewarded them with honours and offices. But others, who had not offered their wives such business, she hated and brought to destruction in every possible way. These deeds, however, though of such a nature and carried on so openly, for a long time escaped the notice of Claudius. For Messalina took care of him by giving him sundry housemaids to lie with, and took care of those who could give him any information by either showing them favours or inflicting punishment upon them. So, let's ask the obvious question. How much of this is true? We have the same problem for Messalina as we had with the latter half of the reign of Tiberius, as well as that of Caligula, in that we are missing the relevant sections of Tacitus. Indeed, the next surviving book of his starts literally with the beginning of Messalina's fall. Tacitus is the most reliable historian of the period, and so without him we are left with people like Cassius Dial and Suetonius, whose methods are a little more questionable. Then again, given what we would later see from Tacitus' description of Messalina's fall, I imagine his account would have backed up his two historical colleagues. I think there is little doubt that Messalina was a highly promiscuous woman. I find it unlikely that so many charges would have been laid against her by so many writers and witnesses if there was not some truth to the accusations. Now, did she compete with a notorious prostitute to see how many men they could sleep with in a single night? Probably not. This sounds a little too similar to a charge laid at the feet of Julia. Remember that one? Where she was accused of prostituting herself on the streets of Rome and shagging random passers-by? Seems a little far-fetched. Now, the ancient sources are fairly clear on the question of why Messalina was doing this. They cast her as an evil, immoral nymphomaniac. She couldn't help herself. She was just that awful. Again, this mirrors the depiction of Julia during the reign of her father Augustus. They depict Messalina as taking advantage of her weak husband. Now, this occurred because the empire had fallen into the hands of an old, handicapped man who had married a young harlot. But this moralising approach rather misses the point. Messalina didn't have sex with powerful men because she had to due to some uncontrollable biological urge. She did it for political reasons. As I've said a few times, Messalina's position was never that secure, and so she constantly felt the need to reinforce it. As a woman, she could not engage in the same kinds of activities that Claudius could in order to make political alliances. She could not enter political spaces, such as the Senate, and was not yet of sufficient reputation, or from an august enough family, for her name alone to carry enough weight. Where some politicians would have traded in financial bribes, political capital, or promises from their extensive client network, Messalina used her body. It was the one thing that she had that the men around her did not. We get a sense of this from that quote from Cassius Dio that I read earlier, where he accused Messalina of advancing the men that she had sex with and attacking those whom refused. He portrays this as the action of a woman who purely advanced her favourites, but we get a different sense of this if we examine this as being part of a client-patron relationship. 
Messalina had many goals in this period. In the short term, she wanted to maintain her position as empress, increase her own prominence in the political sphere, and take care of any obvious rivals. In the longer term, she was looking for some insurance in case of Claudius' sudden death. With Britannicus still young, it would be highly likely that his succession would be challenged by another member of the Julio-Claudian family, or maybe even someone from outside. Messalina alone could not hope to defend her son from this, but if she had a network of supporters secured through essentially sexual bribery, as well as perhaps a powerful lover acting as a guardian, she could guide Britannicus to the imperial throne. To you Queens of England fans out there, think of her strategy as being a kinder version of what Isabella of France did with Roger Mortimer in order to win and secure the English throne for Edward III. The problem with this strategy, of course, is that it plays directly into the worst fears that many men had about powerful women. They feared their sexuality, and so, for the most part, powerful women tended to have to behave in an ultra-conservative way if they wanted to succeed. Just look at Livia. Messalina took a different route, and while it worked for her, at least for a time, when it did go wrong, it failed spectacularly, and led to her own name being damned for all eternity. While Messalina's affairs were spread fairly liberally about the Roman establishment, there was one man that she was especially intimate with. Gaius Silius. He was the son of a great Roman general, whose friendship with Germanicus led him to being brought down by Sejanus. His son was an ambitious man and had risen quickly through the ranks of the Senate, making his name after making an impassioned speech decrying bribery in the legal system. He had married well to a woman named Junia Silana, who was the sister of one of Caligula's former wives. By 47 CE, he had been chosen to be one of the consuls for the following year, and it was then that he attracted, again, pun intended, the attention of Messalina, who was always on the lookout for the next rising star. While she doesn't seem to have been too emotionally involved in her other affairs, and acted with a degree of discretion, it was different with Silius. By 47 CE, he had been chosen to be one of the consuls for the following year, and it was then that he attracted the attention of Messalina, who was always on the lookout for the next rising star. While she doesn't seem to have been too emotionally involved in her other affairs, and acted with a degree of discretion, it was different with Silius. She reportedly led him to divorce his wife, and took to spending a great deal of time at his home. Tacitus writes that, quote, for her passion for Gaius Silius, most handsome of Roman youths, had burned so high that she drove his distinguished wife, Junia Solana, from under her husband's roof and entered upon the possession of a now unfettered adulterer. Silius was blind neither to the scandal nor to the danger, but since refusal was certain death, since there was some little hope of avoiding exposure, and since the rewards were high, he consoled himself by closing his eyes to the future and enjoying the present. Messalina, with no attempt at concealment, went incessantly to the house with a crowd of retainers. Abroad, she clung to his side. He goes on to say that Messalina literally started moving furniture and slaves from the imperial palace into Silius's house. This was moving beyond a simple affair for political gain. This was turning into something far more serious and dangerous. It was in the same year that Messalina took up with Silius, the year 47, that events began that would lead to her downfall. The first scandal was that of the death of Polybius. 
Not to be confused with the historian of the Mid-Republic, this Polybius was one of Claudius's many freedmen secretaries. He was responsible for handling petitions to the emperor, and, unsurprisingly for someone in such a powerful position, he was also reportedly one of Messalina's lovers. We know of his influence largely thanks to the fact that Seneca the Younger wrote a full conciliatio for him, consoling him over the death of his brother, in an attempt to get him recalled from exile. Remember that Seneca had been exiled at Messalina's urging for sleeping with Lavilla, and the Empress feared that his influence, should he return, might lead to problems for her. Suspecting that Polybius was agitating for Seneca's return, Messalina turned on the freedman and talked Claudius into having him executed. This was a big mistake, as Claudius's freedman, especially Narcissus, had been some of her most powerful supporters. Now that they discovered that they could be fair game in Messalina's political war, they realised they weren't as safe as they had previously thought. This was then compounded by the next scandal, that of the trial and execution of Decimus Valerius Asiaticus. He was a wealthy and well-respected Roman senator, the first man from Gaul to have ever been admitted to the body, and had twice served as consul by 47. His wife was the sister of another of Caligula's wives, and had been one of the many assassins of the former emperor. Now, the circumstances of Asiaticus' downfall are, quite frankly, bizarre. Following his second consulship, he had bought the gardens of Lucullus, one of Rome's most magnificent private properties, and planned to redevelop them. This was, however, sought after real estate, and apparently Messalina had a hankering for it. But this is even the pettiest thing that she is accused of in this regard. She was also jealous, apparently, of his mistress, Pompeia Sabina. She was a woman famed for her beauty, who seemed to be sleeping around Rome quite as much as Messalina was. One of her lovers was one of the great actors of the day, a Greek man named Menesta. Not one seemingly to let things go, the Empress of Rome decided to take a man down because she wanted his house, and was jealous of the man with whom his mistress was also sleeping. Like I said, bizarre. One suspects that there must have been more to it than this. Asiaticus had been an assassin of Caligula, and Claudius had always had his eye on the men that had raised him to the throne. Once a kingslayer, perhaps always a kingslayer. Asiaticus had the loyalty of the Rhine legions. You saw him as a native hero thanks to his Gallic heritage, and so it's not ridiculous to think of him as a potential leader of a coup, should he put his mind to it. This explanation seems to me far more likely than the petty squabbling over a house and a Greek actor. Whatever the reason, Messalina set her attack dog Rufus on Asiaticus, who had him arrested while he was holidaying near Pompeii and brought back to Rome in chains. Furthering the bizarre nature of this affair, he was not brought to trial before the courts, but instead was taken to Claudius's bedroom in the palace, where the emperor would pass judgment. Rufus laid out the charges, which included, amongst other things, failure to control his troops, corruption, adultery, and, most famously, unnatural homosexuality. Asiaticus apparently took grave offence to the last of these charges, exclaiming, quote, Question my own sons, Rufus. They will confess to my manhood. His defence was led by a man named Vitellius, who was another one of Messalina's favourites. Even by the standards of contemporary show trials, the case against Asiaticus was incredibly weak. 
and it seemed that Claudius was on the brink of announcing the verdict of acquittal. But seeing the danger, Messalina stepped in. She persuaded her husband that Asiaticus was already guilty. This was not a trial to discover his guilt or innocence. This was merely a hearing to determine the means of his execution. Now, this seems rather to play too conveniently into the rather discredited notion that Claudius was a dimwit too easily duped by his wives. So I think it rather more likely that Messalina egged her husband on, and that he came to the sentence of death that way. Claudius elected to let Asiaticus choose his own method of death. According to Tacitus, quote, Asiaticus went through the gymnastic exercises which had become habitual with him, bathed, dined in good spirits, and, after observing that it would have been more respectable to perish by the subtlety of Tiberius or the onslaught of Caligula than to fall by feminine fraud, and the lecherous tongue of Vitellius, opened his arteries, but not before he had visited his pyre and given orders for it to be moved to another site, so that his trees, with their shady leafage, might not be affected by the heat. What a cool dude. The death of Asiaticus alarmed a great number of senators, who were only told about any of this after he committed suicide. They despised the bullying tactics of Rufus, seeing him as making enormous profits off the trying and convicting of innocent men, and they blamed Messalina for being the one behind it all. While I think it highly unlikely that Claudius was the dupe in all of this, he tends to escape a lot of the blame because men thought so little of him. He couldn't possibly have been behind it all. He was too much of a dunce. No, it must have been unscrupulous advisers and that awful wife of his. Taking down Polybius had angered the freedmen who controlled the imperial administration, and the death of Asiaticus further hardened the enmity of the Senate. Messalina was skating on thin ice. Recognising that her rival was in trouble then, Agrippina decided that now was the time to come back to Rome and see Messalina's inevitable fall. Again, I'll probably go into more detail about this in the coming series in Agrippina, but this bit is important to Messalina's story. Remember that Agrippina had gone into exile after the disgrace of her sister Lavilla. She was returning now, ostensibly, only to attend the secular games. Despite their name, these were a highly religious occasion, and were thrown this time to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the founding of Rome. One of the ceremonies in these games was the Lucis Troiae, or Game of Troy. This was participated in by young boys from the very best Roman families, and so, naturally, Britannicus was involved. The crowd gave him a great cheer as he was introduced to the arena. But there was another youth who received an even more enthusiastic reaction. Agrippina's son, Nero. The acclamation of the crowd was no mere popularity poll, it was taken very seriously by the Romans. Moreover, it showed to Messalina that the people of Rome, if given a say, would have at that time preferred Nero to be made heir of Claudius rather than her own son Britannicus. It was also a great blow to her pride, as it showed that, even after so many years away from the action, the great Agrippina was still more beloved than she. Agrippina and Nero later spread the story that Messalina so feared the two that she attempted to kill the young boy by having some assassins slip into his room while he was taking a nap. Apparently, they were scared off by Nero's pet snake. Just when you thought this episode could not get more surreal. 47 had been a fateful year for Messalina, but 48 
would turn out to be fatal. See what I did there? She appears to have grown a little reckless in her persecutions, but she was yet to make her greatest mistake. Earlier, I talked about her affair with Silius, and how, according to Tacitus, she'd effectively begun living with him at his house, and moved furniture and slaves out of the palace into their new love den. Well, it seems that in 48, the two of them decided to hatch a daring scheme. To marry, overthrow Claudius, and install Britannicus as emperor, with Silius acting as his guardian. With Agrippina and Nero back in town, and seemingly gaining more and more followers, they may have felt that it was now or never. Now, one might have expected them to have gotten married in secret, right? This was treason of the highest order, not something to be rubbed in everyone's faces, surely. But no. Perhaps feeling overly confident in their own popularity and base of support, Messalina and Silius threw a great big wedding for themselves, while Claudius was off performing a public engagement at the port of Ostia, 16 miles away from the capital. If you're rather incredulous about this, and count me amongst you, then you share the view of Tacitus, who wrote, quote, I am well aware that it will seem a fable that any persons in the world could have been so obtuse. In a city which knows everything and hides nothing, much more that these persons should have been consul-elect and the emperor's wife, that, on an appointed day, before witnesses duly summoned, they should have come together as if for the purpose of legitimate marriage, that she should have listened to the words of the bridegroom's friends, should have sacrificed to the gods, have taken her place among a company of guests, have lavished her kisses and caresses, and passed the night in the freedom which marriage permits. But this is no story to excite wonder. I do but relate what I have heard and what our fathers have recorded. This is where Messalina's persecution of Polybius really came to bite her in the backside. Before now, she had always been able to trust in that group of powerful freedmen that surrounded Claudius to keep him in the dark. Remember that her great ally Narcissus controlled his mail, and so was able to sift out any reports that might have sullied the name of the Empress. But Narcissus was not willing to betray his emperor. He had allied with Messalina before as a matter of convenience, as her aims of sweeping the board clear of rivals to Claudius had meshed well with his own goals of keeping the emperor safe. However, he was not willing to join her and Silius in their coup. The situation was, though, finally balanced. Silius and Messalina had a great body of support, including in the upper echelons the Praetorian Guard. If they could persuade the rank and file of the guards to change sides, then the game was up. Narcissus needed to get Claudius back to Rome and into the Praetorian camp, and quickly. He sent a message to Claudius, warning him of what was going on. The emperor, who apparently heard it all through two of his own mistresses, reacted quickly to the danger, and set off at all haste back to Rome. Narcissus accompanied him in the carriage, to make sure that he remained steadfast in his quest for vengeance. Meanwhile, back at the wedding, Tacitus describes this scene. Quote, Messalina had never given voluptuousness a freer reign. The presses were being trodden, the vats were overflowing, women girt with skins were dancing as bacchals dance in their worship or their frenzy. Messalina, with flowing hair, shook the thrysus, and Silius at her side, crowned with ivy, moved his head to some lascivious chorus. It is said that one Vetis Valens climbed a very lofty tree in sport, 
and when they asked him what he saw, replied, A great storm from Ostia. As if on cue, messengers arrived, telling everyone that Claudius had found out that the wedding was going on and was on his way back to Rome, and that troops had been sent to arrest them all. Silius hurried back to the Forum, looking to muster the support of the Senate, while Messalina sent word to her children to come with all haste to their father's side. She then rushed off on foot, looking to try and hitch a ride on the road to Ostia to intercept her husband and beg for his forgiveness. She eventually climbed aboard a garden refuse cart and managed to meet the imperial convoy before it reached the city. When she saw her husband, she shouted out to him, begging to be given an audience so that she might explain herself. But Narcissus refused to let her see the emperor, instead reading out a long list of her conquests and other accusations against her. When her children arrived, she desperately tried again, hoping that the sight of his beloved Britannicus might remind Claudius of how much she loved her. But, again, she failed to gain access to her husband. All she could do was join the back of the convoy and await her fate. Narcissus wasn't taking any chances. He first took Claudius to Silius' house, where the emperor saw so many of his own possessions now on display. Understandably, Claudius was driven into fury, which suited the freedmen just fine. They then went to the Praetorian camp, where Claudius did what Messalina and Silius should have done from the start. He won their loyalty, and then began issuing summary justice. At a hastily convened tribunal, first Silius and then a whole host of senators and officials were executed or banished for their part in the coup. Even the Greek actor, whom Messalina had apparently had Asiatus killed over, was also put to death. However, Claudius appears to have been wavering on what to do about his wife, and delayed the decision on her fate until the following morning. He sent her back to the gardens of Lucullus, that fancy property she had stolen from Asiaticus, while he went off to celebrate the successful defence of his rule at a great big feast. When she arrived back at the gardens, Messalina's estranged mother Domitia Lepida is reported to have come to visit her that night, and encouraged her to take the noble path, and commit suicide rather than face Claudius's judgment. Messalina appears to have considered taking this advice, but was unable to go through with the deed. Just then, troops loyal to Narcissus rushed in. Claudius's secretary wanted a trial even less than Messalina did. What details might she reveal about their own collusion? After all, he'd known about her affairs all along, and done nothing to stop them. Seeing the troops rush in, Messalina grabbed a sword and tried to stab herself, but again she couldn't do it. Instead, she was run through by one of the oncoming soldiers. In a twist of fate that all ancient writers love, she was killed in the very gardens that she had had a man killed over. Stabbed over her love of a man in the former home of one whose mistress had coveted a man she lusted over. When Claudius was told of the news, he seemed to take it all in his stride. According to Tacitus, quote, Word was carried to Claudius at the table that Messalina had perished, whether by her own or a strange hand was not specified. Nor was the question asked. He called for a cup and went on with the party as normal. Messalina had been Empress of Rome for seven years, and for the most of that time had been a figure of tremendous power, and yet had been brought down in the space of perhaps as short as a single day. Historians have struggled ever since with one question. 
What the hell was she thinking? Both Tacitus and Suetonius make pains to state in their accounts that, even though it appears unbelievable that she and Silius would have been so stupid, it really did happen. The theory that I have presented here, that this was all part of a concerted attempted coup orchestrated by Messier and Silius to put Britannicus on the throne with the two of them as his guardians, is the one that I believe to be the most likely. It is the only one that, to me, satisfactorily explains why she would take such an enormous risk. If that really was her plan, then she went about it in a terrible way. Perhaps she did need to first marry Silius in order to bind their pact in something solid, and maybe they needed some witnesses to solemnise their union. But the first thing they should have done is ensure the death of Claudius and the support of the Praetorians. Instead, they engaged in a night of wild partying, leaving the important business of carrying out their coup until the next morning. Talk about procrastination. There are some alternate theories. There is the original explanation offered by men like Tacitus, that these were the actions of a hedonistic, thrill-seeking madwoman, who threw together an impossible plan thanks to her being led by her libido rather than her brain. Some modern historians have also suggested that maybe Messalina and Silius's plans were a little more modest, that they were merely sealing a political partnership with this marriage, and that they never planned to overthrow the emperor. Others still have pointed out this whole thing may have been a plot hatched by Narcissus, who threw his former ally under the bus in order to protect himself and further his own career. And finally, there is the presence of Agrippina and Nero to consider. But for me, none of these other theories satisfactorily explain everything that went on on that crazy autumn day in 48, that saw the extrajudicial murder of a second Roman empress in a row. And Messalina's ordeal was not even over. The Senate ordered that her name be damned. She was only the second Roman woman to suffer this fate, the previous being Drusus's wife, Lavilla. Every portrait of her was smashed. Every inscription bearing her name was removed. You can actually see a space in some surviving inscriptions where her name was chiselled out. This means that we have no contemporary likenesses of her and lack important details that may have helped flesh out her life. But despite their best efforts they have not managed to wipe her name out of the history books. Messalina has been portrayed for so often in history as a stupid harlot, a promiscuous wife who was ruled by her lust and so nearly brought Rome to ruin through her insidious sexual corruption. She led a reign of terror against good honest senators, they say, led their wives to conduct constant affairs and then capped it all off with history's dumbest coup attempt. But in these two episodes, I hope I have shown that, if you look at things a little more critically, a far more interesting woman appears. She was flawed, yeah, but emerges as an important and powerful political figure. She worked hard to protect her own position, and that of her son, but also her husband's regime as well, and did so with some success. She built alliances, and seems to have maintained the loyalty of her husband right up until the end. Where she falls down is that the methods that she used were extremely risky, and not all that well suited to long-term strategy. She built a power base thanks to the liberal application of her own sexuality. This all relied on the ignorance, willful or otherwise, of her husband. Her early strikes against Claudius's nieces had brought her a bit of time at the top, but when she made tactical mistakes, cracks appeared, and her enemies led by Agrippina pounced. 
As I've said already, the main problem for her is that the very tactics that she used played into every misogynistic stereotype of women in power. That of the oversexed, haughty, ambitious woman who used her feminine wiles and silver tongue to bring good moral men and women to ruin. She played a gambit, and for a while she did well, but she was not good enough political player to win the biggest bet of her career, and she paid for it with her life. Okay, I think after that long and rather saucy episode, we all need a bit of time to cool off. I'm going to be taking next week off, as I need to take a little bit of time to get ready to prepare for the next series of episodes, which will be on Messalina's great rival and successor, Agrippina. She was just as controversial an empress as Messalina, but with one important difference. Messalina never saw her son become emperor, but Agrippina would. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.